Well, we're looking at Romans 5, 18 to 21. And what's happening here is Paul is now coming back to what he started in verse 12. He cut verse 12 off kind of right in the middle. He said, as one man, and then he just sort of goes off on this tangent to explain these different things that he needs to explain so that what he's saying about Adam, what he's saying about Christ, makes sense. So he comes now full circle, and he talks again about what all this means. Oh, goodness. Sorry about that. And, um, well, I've just lost my entire train of thought. Hold on a second. Well, I think that's all I was going to say. Let's stand together and let's read God's Word. <laughs> I, I don't know. We're going to stand and we'll read together. Oh, I'll read and we'll just, we'll see if we can. <laughs> Romans 5, beginning in verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men... So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Again, Father, we ask that you would take this word, that you would do all that you intend by it, that you would convict, that you would comfort us, that you would conform us to the image of your son. We ask that you would um, show us, reveal to us those things that we need to hear. More than anything, we ask that you would strengthen us by the gospel of your son in Christ's name. Amen. So I want to tell a story about the redemption Jesus accomplished in history. I want to do that now because Paul has been talking about this redemption that Jesus accomplished in history in chapters 1 to 5. And now here, as I said, he pulls together several themes that he's been talking about since verse 12. Here they are. Adam, Christ, the law, Moses, trespass, disobedience, an act of righteousness, and then obedience, condemnation, justification in life, the increase of a trespass, and then grace abounding to meet it, and then the reign of death, or the reign of sin and death, and then the reign of grace. I want to tell a story that pulls all of these together, right, in a, in a story that sort of we're going to run through the redemptive story of, Christ, uh, of history, but I want to tell this story in a way that pulls together the work of Christ. What I'm hoping this will do is show something that, I don't know, maybe you have this question about. 
I'm hoping this, that this will show in this telling why Jesus had to come in the flesh and why Jesus had to die. Have you ever asked yourself that question? I mean, I don't know if you're, if you're as a Christian or you're not supposed to ask. I don't know if you think that. But have you wondered, why couldn't God just, done? Why did, why was it flesh that Jesus had to be here, God? And why death? That seems so violent. Why? Hopefully this will, this will at least answer some of that. So I want to start, first of all, with Adam's trespass, those themes of disobedience, condemnation, and then the reign of sin and the reign of death. So we'll start again at the beginning. Adam and Eve, now here we're just going to tell a little bit differently. Everybody know what we're doing? You feel like, are you on board with this? Okay. So Adam and Eve, newsflash, they are made of flesh. Right now, flesh, bones, muscle, they historical, real people in a real place, flesh. And flesh, it means something. Even then, and this is okay, it means being limited. It means being weak. It means being vulnerable. It means being dependent. And I didn't come up with that. I'm drawing on different theologians and some pastors and sort of pulling some of these things together that I think make sense of this. But that idea of flesh, limited, weak, vulnerable, dependent, and that was very good. They did not supply all that they needed. God did. In the garden, the place where fleshy creatures communed with God, the fleshy creatures had life. Flesh dwelt in the holy presence of God. Get that? That's the big setup. Well, then we have the fall. And instead of trusting God, they sought what the serpent convinced them that God withheld. You won't die. You'll know good and evil. They tried to overcome something. You know what they tried to overcome? Flesh. They tried to overcome limitation, weakness, vulnerability, dependence. But they didn't overcome it. They couldn't. Instead, they were driven out of the garden, driven away from this space, from this place, where God's holy presence was. They faced death. We said this last week. They were cut off from God. Death. Spiritual death. They faced a return to dust. Death. Physical death. And now, here's the big, here's the big punchline. Flesh is not fit to be in the holy presence of God. In fact, it's dangerous. Here's the proof. There's an angel with a sword standing at the entrance of the garden. 
dead if you try to go back in. Now, outside the garden, Adam and Eve are still flesh, still limitations, still weak, still vulnerable, still dependent. But now we add this. Flesh is under the reign of death and sin. What does flesh under the reign of death and sin look like? Well, it looks a little bit more like what we just saw Adam try to do to overcome flesh. Flesh, under the reign of sin and death, seeks to escape fleshy life. It's a refusal. Still, it's a refusal. I don't want to be flesh. And this comes out in many ways. Vulnerability. As flesh, you're subject to loss. You're subject to lack, to damage, to death. And you know what that breeds? Fear. Anxiety. And so what do we do? We seek to protect. We seek to protect us. To protect this infringement. To protect loss. And you know how that comes out? In aggression. That comes out in violence. Weakness, right? That's insecurity. Uncertainty. How does flesh try to overcome that? Through strength. Through achievement. Look at me. Power. To dominate. You don't want to be weak? Does anybody, I mean, or any of you particularly enjoying being weak? Anybody? I mean, is that just where you want to naturally, do you want to go out and march the streets and say, I'm weak? I'm vulnerable. Look at me. Flesh says, I don't want to be finite. I don't want to be mortal. Flesh, from this viewpoint, we can see how the the works of the flesh are what they are. You ready for this? Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, and envy. Does that not sound like flesh? I don't want to be finite. I don't want to be mortal. I don't want to be weak. I don't want to be vulnerable. I don't want to be dependent. Get me out of here. And all of that just compounds the biggest problem. Flesh is not fit for the holy presence of God. It's not. Can you imagine a culture or a society that's organized around flesh? Oh, wait, we don't have to. Genesis 11 Tower of Babel. Here we see flesh on full display. You got one people, one language, and they're all together. Flesh 
And what did they do? We will reach the heavens. We'll storm it. Oh, we'll make a name for us. Does that not sound like flesh? Refusing vulnerability, weakness, dependence. Even refusing that it is not fit for the holy presence of God. What does God do? He confuses their language. He scatters them. Now we have flesh, not just one people, but many people. These are the nations. So we got two problems now. We got the first problem that all flesh is condemned. They are not fit to enter the holy presence of God because they're under the reign of sin and death. And we no longer have one people that could be in the holy presence of God. Now we've got a scattered people all over the place. God has got to deal with that. And how does he do it? How does he plan to get flesh back into his presence as one people? Well, here we get Abraham. God leaves, and this is what's amazing. Now that's all pretty bleak. God leaves the garden to go after flesh. One guy, Abram, makes a promise to Abram. Again, I want you to make, this is the flesh that cannot have access to him. The flesh that is spread out all over the place. And God picks one man, Abram, and says, I'm going to make out of you a big people, a nation. And through you, in you, all of these other nations are going to be blessed. And what do you think that blessing might be? Him. Him. And then he does this thing, and this is interesting. I'm, this will be an addition to the circumcision discussion. Abram received circumcision. And you know what circumcision is? It's a cut in the flesh. Which is to say, it is an act that renounces flesh. That's what, that's what Abraham did. He believed God. And remember what he believed him for. He believed God could bring life from death. Right. Him. His flesh was dead. Her flesh was dead. He believed God could raise his son from death. You see that? Not trusting in flesh, but anti-flesh. And then, now we come to this other part. That's Adam, the trespass, the, the condemnation, all of that. Reign of sin and death. Now we come to the law increasing the trespass. Okay. I thought it was going to be good news. Well, it kind of is. Abraham's people, they grew, right? They went to Egypt. 
And Egypt is like this little microcosm. It's this little picture of the larger picture of all flesh being under the reign of death and sin. Right? That's what it's like. They're there, and, and here's, how you see, you're, here's how you see flesh show up. You remember, you remember the big dilemma. right? Pharaoh forgot who Joseph was, and then what did Pharaoh try to do? He tried to wipe him out. Do you know why he tried to wipe them out? Because they were getting to be too many. And do you know why that was a problem? Because it was a threat. A threat to what? A threat to flesh. A threat to power. There they are in this little microcosm of the reign of sin and death and flesh. And then, and then just this little picture. You remember, you remember the, 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 the plague just before the last plague? Remember that one? Dark. Remember? Like in all of Egypt, it was like you couldn't see your hand in front of your face dark. But then where, where God's people were, right there, it was light. They get to see this little, kind of this interesting thing, this, this little light right in the midst of the darkness. And then God does this thing, which really is like a, a, a nice little picture of how he plans to do this thing for the whole world. He does it in small scale. He brings them out. And then this is when it gets really amazing. He brings them to a mountain, and you remember what he makes them? A holy nation. A kingdom of priests. Hmm. A kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Well, this sort of fits with what I'm going to make your nation, you're going to be a nation, and you're going to bless all these other nations, okay? And then, and this is from basically Exodus to, to Numbers. He gives them the Ten Words, the Ten Commandments, the Law. And this is all Torah. Right? Then he gives them a tabernacle. Then he gives them sacrifices. And then he gives them a priesthood. So what God has done is he's taking this little people, and now he's created this order. They have a nature now. Right in the middle is the tabernacle, and all around are the people. And then in this tabernacle, you've got this really holy space, and then you've got a moderately less holy space, and then you've got the space that's clean. And you know what's going on outside of that? Darkness and death. What God has just created is a little world. It's a little world that rivals the other little worlds that got created by all the surrounding nations. And what this little world was meant to be was a light. Here's the beautiful thing. Through this people, through this little world that God constructed, He made it possible for flesh 
to come close, to draw near. God came to flesh that doesn't want anything to do with God or being flesh, and he makes a way for flesh to come near at a safe distance. They can't come out, right? We're not done. And you know what those, you know what those sacrifices were that did this, that made it possible for flesh to draw near? Well, of course, there are animal sacrifices. Flesh that stands in for flesh. The big one, the first one, listen to this, is the burnt offering. Really, it's called the ascension offering. You know why? Because the whole animal's burnt up. The animal's killed, yes, it's about death. The animal dies a death for the person. But it doesn't stop there. The whole animal is burnt up. And you know what that smoke does? It ascends to the Lord. And you know what God does with that smoke? He calls it a pleasing aroma. What this represents, what's, go- what's happening there? God has made a way for this flesh that he made to be in his presence, to commune with him. He made a way for this flesh to, by representation, safely to be accepted into his presence, consecrated. The purification offering, this offering was a response to the dirt of sin that pollutes Blood is like a disinfectant that cleans the space, the tabernacle in particular. The reparation offering, this is the idea of stealing something, right? When we do sins that were unintentional, it's like stealing God's glory, stealing his honor. Now a debt is owed. It's owed to God or it might be owed to my neighbor. But it's reparation. It offers a satisfaction or payment for sin. Animal is the payment. And here is the lovely one, the one that maybe you would not anticipate, the peace offering. You know what is special about the peace offering? Do you know what's amazing about the peace offering? That's God saying, come to my table. You know, the peace offering is the only one that the common Israelite, it's the only one that they could eat. You get this. God is eating with his people. Flesh! And what this little world was supposed to be, it was supposed to telegraph to all the other nations So that all the other nations, they go, my mind is blown. Actually, it goes like this. Keep them and do them. This is Torah. 
For that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, Surely this great nation is wise and understanding. For what nation is there that has a God, listen to this, so near? That's what they were supposed to say. And then we have the kingdom. Israel demanded a king. God judged that king. And then he gave them a king that he chose, David. He blesses David. He builds David's house. And then, David couldn't build God's house. Solomon builds God's house. This is the temple. So now we don't have a tabernacle. We've got a temple. It's not on the move. It's there in God's place. Solomon prays for wisdom. He does the opposite of what Adam does. He prays for wisdom. And God gives it to him. This was wisdom so that he could administer justice. And this is about as close as we get, folks. This is about as close as we get to these people being what they were supposed to be. In first, I mean, excuse me, First Kings eight. Solomon prays this prayer. Listen to this: for the nation, he says, likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country, for your name's sake, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm. When he comes and prays towards this house, Solomon says, hear him. And he asks God to hear them so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you. And then, you know what? Some of these nations did hear. Queen of Sheba. You know what she says? She says, Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever. He has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. So we've got... This possibility of being able to draw near. We've got this possibility of the kingdom of God, righteousness, justice, being put on display, calling all nations to come in. We've got that right there. The way God promised. But then what happens? Did they function as the light on the hill? Did they embody the justice and righteousness of God? What happened? I'll give you one guess. Flesh. Flesh. Specifically, we see flesh show up in the people of God. You know what it was? Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, Dissensions, divisions, and envy. Over and over again, kings did evil in the sight of the Lord all the days of their life. They turned 
the Torah on its head. Do you know how the, God, you know how the prophets describe these leaders? In Amos in particular. I mean, the, the image that Amos uses is that these people have cooked up this soup made up of the flesh of the people that they're supposed to care for, and they're just eating it. They devour the people. Well, God condemns flesh in this people. He drives them out of the land, away from the temple, away from the priesthood, away from his presence. That's exile, that's death, that's flesh. It's almost like they're Adam all over again. But he brings them back, and they're looking forward to God, doing what he promised to Abraham and David, they're waiting, looking to God to bring his king, to restore his people, to establish his kingdom of justice and righteousness. And we go on. And then we pick it up again in the New Testament with Herod. Magnificent temple. Magnificent temple. Glorious, though Israel's under the rule of Rome. And what was Israel, the people of God, what were they like at this time? Were they a kingdom of priests? No. Flesh. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissension, divisions, envy. You can't make this stuff up, man. The Pharisees, the leaders of Israel, the priests, they use the temple system to get rich. They sought places of honor. They created more separation than there ever was. They had like a place for the Gentiles. They had a place for Jewish women. And then you've got not just keeping the Gentiles away, but you've got the Jewish leaders keeping Jews away. They've turned Torah upside down. And, here, here we go, and when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman, under the law, under that. This is really important. Christ, Jesus, comes in history. He comes in the world ordered by God, the Torah, the temple, circumcision. Now here's we get in, here we, we get into Christ's act of righteousness and justice. I mean, or obedience. Christ came in the flesh, living according to the Spirit. Hadn't been done. Christ came in the flesh, embodying 
Torah, justice, and righteousness. Christ came in the flesh sharing a table with sinners. He was violating all the traditions. Christ came in the flesh healing the sick, the blind, the lame, raising the dead. Christ came in the flesh But he overturned flesh. Christ came in the flesh, bringing the kingdom of God. And here's the most important thing. In Christ, God did not simply dwell with flesh. God took flesh. Christ called out the leaders of Israel. He called out Pharisees and priests. He called out their fleshy existence. And you know what they did? This is this is you just this is amazing. You know what they did? <laughs> they accused Jesus of blasphemy. They accused Jesus of breaking Torah. Oh, the self-righteousness. You can just feel it. They accused Jesus. This is my mate. They accused Jesus of living according to flesh. They treated Jesus like he was the flesh that needed to be removed from the presence of God. Do you get how, how completely backwards that is? Jesus exposed the depth of the depravity. We see in Israel, particularly its leaders, flesh using Torah. Flesh, flesh used what was meant by God to put his righteousness on display, his justice and righteousness. Flesh used that. Flesh used what was meant to bring flesh near. Flesh used all that to do what flesh does, to escape limitation, weakness, vulnerability, and dependence. Jesus called them to repentance. Jesus said, okay, it's up. Judgment is coming. And what they did was they crucified him. You need to catch this, because this is in history. Remember, God made a promise to Abraham that he was going to bless all the nations through Abraham's seed. So what happens if God takes Israel out here? I mean, I was 
reading somebody, and they made this point. It's very easy for us who are reading the Gospels now to go, no, it'll be all right. Jesus is going to die. But just imagine, what was at stake there? What do we do? The promise, the rescue of the world through Abraham's seed. It's important to you that you see that this gospel that you and I say that we believe about Jesus, that it gets worked out in history. It's not out there in, as an abstraction. There are real historical, sequential problems that Jesus is dealing with, solving, so that God's plan to rescue all creation actually happens. So what does Jesus do? He's crucified. Here it is. He solves the flesh problem. Are you ready? We'll get to this later, but Romans 8, 3. For God has done what the law weakened as it, excuse me, weakened by flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He, God, here's what he did, he condemned sin in the flesh. He dealt with it. Jesus Christ is Israel's Messiah. He's their king. And as their king, he's their head. He's their rep representative. The very men that sought to crucify him, they didn't know that what he was doing by being crucified is taking the judgment that was due them, God's people. And in bearing the sin of Israel, Christ fulfilled their role in the nations. In bearing the sin of Israel, Christ acts not just as priest, but as sacrifice. And in doing that, he deals with sin and flesh. All of it. He bears the sin of Israel. He bears the sin of Rome. He bears the sin of all. Through Christ, God finally and fully condemns sin in the flesh. Sin in the flesh got magnified by the law. What the law did was it made flesh and sin a huge target, and God just nailed it through Christ. Judged in the death of Christ, or as what was read, I think, Morris read today. He was made sin. So that we might be made the righteousness of God. Christ fulfills the burnt offering. He's our substitute. Christ is this sweet-smelling sacrifice that rises to God. Christ, as human being, as humanity, as your representative, as a representative of Israel, as a representative of you, he enters. God's presence, flesh, not at a distance, 
in God's presence. Christ is sanctified. He is consecrated. He is set apart. Christ is this purification offering. He cleanses. Not the temple that was made with hands, but in the temple. Right? That's Hebrews 9. It was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, with blood, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Jesus. And Jesus purifies us. A purification of the flesh. Real purification. Not at a distance. The reparation offering. Oh, you'll be familiar with this one. Isaiah 53. He's wounded for our transgressions. He's crushed for our iniquities. Upon, his was, excuse me, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. To put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt. And Christ is the peace offering. In Christ, we have this fellowship with God. He says, come eat with me. Only he feeds you the body and blood of Jesus. He solves the Abraham problem. Dying and rising for his people Christ, true Israel. Christ is king of the world. And you know what he does? He raises up a new people with a new covenant. Remember those 12 guys? All those people, but those 12 guys, that wasn't an accident. Still, still here in the flesh. We'll talk about that next week. But now, living according to the Spirit, like their Savior and King. And this is the beautiful thing. He solves the battle problem. God's promise to Abraham gets moved forward because we've got this seed of Abraham. And all the nations will be blessed through him. One seed, people. Through Christ. And because of this, because of this, you don't have many anymore. You got one. One new man. The wall broken down. Not Jew, not Gentile, but not just that. One new man. No Greek, no Jew, no slave, 
no free, no man, no woman. One in Christ. You absolutely needed a Savior to come in the flesh. You needed a Savior who died for you. And it wouldn't have been very much good if he'd have stayed dead. You needed a Savior that has risen. This is, this is the story that Paul has been painstakingly telling for five chapters. Preaching Christ. This is what he's done. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your mercy. I pray that you would give all of us pause. Lord, I pray that you would that you would stir up our hearts, that you would that you would convict us where we have not understood where we have not grasped the gravity of the work that you've accomplished. Lord, we pray that you would, we pray that you would use what was given here today. Lord, we pray that you would use this to strengthen our confidence, strengthen our trust in your Son. Lord Jesus, would you, would you, would you stir in us this hunger to know you, to move close to you, to praise you, to honor you, to worship you for the life that you've given to us. Help us to recognize, to see today That you have given us, you've opened the way, this access to the holy presence of the Father. Pray that you would help us to see that in doing that, you have freed us and delivered us from the reign of death sin, but you freed us from the domination of this flesh. Oh Lord, we pray that you would, that you would work all of these things in us as a people. In Christ's name, amen.